Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Lawrence Wilkerson, a retired U.S. Army colonel and former chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, who talks about the urgent need for diplomacy to succeed over war in Ukraine. Poe Murray, chair of Newtown Action Alliance, who discusses the successful lawsuit brought by families of victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook School Massacre against the Remington Arms Company, and David Hoffman, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Brunswick, who examines the involvement of right-wing extremists in Canada's Freedom Convoy that in recent weeks occupied downtown Ottawa and blocked border crossings. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Days after six environmental activists were convicted for actions against a mining project in the heart of a national park, the Honduras Supreme Court ordered the men, known as the Guapinol 8, to be set free. The ruling stemmed from a motion filed two years earlier that challenged the constitutionality of the activists' detention. Amnesty International declared the activists prisoners of conscience and urged the government to release them. In 2018, local activists organized an 88-day blockade against the mine, but military police moved in to disperse protesters with tear gas and live ammunition. One civilian was killed and eight others were injured. Many local farmers view the mine as a threat to the regional watershed and their way of life. The iron oxide plant built in the park is backed by some of the most powerful interests in Honduras and drew charges of corruption. Honduras is among the deadliest countries in the world for climate and environmental activists, a pattern of repression that intensified after a 2009 U.S.-backed military coup. But Xiomara Castro was elected president of Honduras last November on the promise of fighting corruption and right-wing repression of environmental and human rights activists, as well as pledging to release the Guapinol political prisoners. After an intense winter storm last year, the electric grid in Texas melted down. The power failure over several days left 5 million without power and killed 247 people due to the loss of heat amid freezing temperatures. The state's Republican governor, Greg Abbott, was blamed by many for the blackout. Over the summer, the Republican-controlled Texas legislature made only minor changes to the state's deregulated and fragile electric grid and failed to implement a plan to winterize natural gas wells that provides the majority of the state's electric power. The New Yorker reports that it could cost Texas as much as $200 million annually to winterize natural gas facilities. Now, Governor Abbott is aggressively courting cryptocurrency companies to relocate to Texas, arguing that the energy-hungry industry will make the Texas grid more resilient by encouraging energy providers to build more capacity. Cryptocurrency mining companies, which essentially convert electricity into money, favor the state's low electric rates. By 2023, 
It's estimated that Texas will be home to 20% of the global Bitcoin network, and by the end of that year, the state's crypto mining facilities' power demands may increase by as much as fivefold. The Guardian reports one in five people seeking to join the white supremacist group Patriot Front claim to be in the U.S. military, both in active duty status and as veterans. The report comes from leaked documents published and reviewed by the Southern Poverty Law Center and the alternative media collective Unicorn Riot. One such individual from San Diego claimed to be a former Marine and said he was currently working in the Department of Homeland Security. The neo-Nazi group Vanguard America changed its name to Patriot Front after the violent 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Over the past year, there's been growing concern surrounding the far-right radicalization of current and former members of the military. More than 80 defendants charged with crimes during the deadly January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection were found to have ties to the military, with most being veterans. Last year, a Pentagon report found that domestic extremist groups pose an increasing threat to the military by attempting to recruit service members and, in some cases, encouraging them to join the military to gain combat experience. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered troops into two Russia-backed separatist territories in eastern Ukraine to act as what he called peacekeepers and hinted at the possibility of a wider military campaign. The order was given after Putin signed a decree late on February 21st, officially recognizing what pro-Russian groups call the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. President Biden and U.S. allies condemned the Kremlin's recognition of the two separatist regions as a violation of international law that risks war. Mr. Biden said the U.S. is imposing full blocking on two large Russian financial institutions, comprehensive sanctions on Russian debt, and other sanctions targeting Russian elites and their family members. Germany announced suspension of the process to certify the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that in the future would bring Russian natural gas to Europe. The U.S. president also announced He was moving some U.S. troops to strengthen Baltic allies, but said it was a defensive move with no intention of fighting Russian forces. Your reporter spoke with Lawrence Wilkerson, distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary, a retired U.S. Army colonel and former chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell. Here, Professor Wilkerson discusses the current crisis in Ukraine reflecting on the damaging role played by U.S. intelligence in the media when he worked with Secretary of State Powell to wrongfully claim that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, justifying the launch of President George W. Bush's 2003 war in Iraq. This morning, the New York Times reported, if the world is entering an era in which countries again make decisions based above all on what their military power allows them to do, It would be a huge change 
end of the New York Times wording. I wrote after that when I read it, you stupid idiot. What has the United States of America been doing for the past 20 plus years? So it's a little bit of hypocrisy for us to be going after Putin as we are going after him right now for doing essentially what we've been doing for the past 20 years. And I guarantee you that Xi Jinping in China understands this situation in a similar way. It's the height of hypocrisy for the United States to be talking about Putin. I have no love for Putin. He's a reprehensible man. He's a dictator. He's a tyrant. And his, his hold on power is a tenuous one at best. As soon as the oligarchs figure out that he might not be their man anymore, they'll get rid of him. But in the meantime, he's doing what one would expect him to be doing, given what the United States has done to him. And it's the height of hypocrisy to, for us to say things like the New York Times said this morning. But uh, as Voltaire said, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. And virtue in this case would be a diplomatic solution that keeps Europe from going into yet another messy, messy war, because that's exactly what this would be, even if it was contained, as I think it would be, to just the guerrilla warfare that Putin favors and our opposition to it, mainly through sanctions on Moscow and so forth. We only have a couple of minutes left, Colonel Wilkerson, but I, I wanted to ask you this question. Whether or not Russia invades Ukraine, how can we, in your view, prevent a dangerous and costly escalation of a Cold War that would certainly rebound to negative effects for the U.S. and Russia, as well as the rest of the world? Any advice you would offer citizens or peace organizations at this moment of crisis? Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft had an article that does all of that. And I told Anatole after he'd written it, I said, none of this will pass our diplomats' lips. But what he talks about in that piece is how to do just exactly what you ask how to do. It's a matter of exquisite diplomacy is what I like to call it. And it, it means each side has to be willing to give this, give that for what it really wants. And if I think if we really were willing to go into this meeting with Putin or whatever it takes, and we were, to, we were willing to take a little mea culpa ourselves, if we were willing to admit to some of the blame ourselves, if we were willing to, at least in, in the quietness of the room, say NATO expansion is over, NATO's out-of-area operations will be curtailed. NATO led the attacks in Libya, one of the disasters that we have created in the post-Cold War era. NATO led that in the guise of out-of-area operations, which is the only mission we can find for it today, because there isn't any other mission unless we fabricate a new Russian threat, which we are very, very rapidly doing, so we can justify its existence. Otherwise, it has no raison d'etre. This is the kind of mess we've put ourselves in, and Putin has contributed. There's no question about it. He's contributed to it from his side. Understandably so, I think, when you think about the generals in his military he has to answer to. Um, but at the same time, it's manageable if both sides will come at it from the perspective of – from Putin's perspective. I don't want these sanctions. I don't want this mess that these sanctions are cre creating for me. And we come at it from 
come at it from the side of, I don't want a war, and I certainly don't want an exchange of nuclear weapons. And oh, by the way, the other owner of the major amount of nuclear weapons in the world is Vladimir Putin. And one of the things we desperately need to do in these talks is spin off into new arms control. Because if we don't, we're facing the second most serious crisis we're confronting today, climate crisis being the most serious, in nuclear weapons. We have virtually destroyed all of the arms control agreements. The only thing left is New START. We've abrogated the ABM Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, the INF Treaty. We have nothing left. That was Lawrence Wilkerson, Distinguished Adjunct Professor of Government and Public Policy at the College of William and Mary, a retired U.S. Army colonel, and former Chief of Staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell. Find more perspectives on the unfolding crisis in Ukraine by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, or PLACA, passed by Congress in 2005, was the top priority of the National Rifle Association and the National Shooting Sports Federation, which happens to be based in Newtown, Connecticut. Newtown's Sandy Hook Elementary School was the scene of the horrifying 2012 massacre of 21st graders and six educators at the hands of a deranged gunman who used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. The federal law protects firearms manufacturers and dealers from being held liable when crimes are committed with their products. But a different law in Connecticut allowed nine families of Sandy Hook victims to sue Remington Arms, maker of the gun used in the crime, based on wrongful marketing claims under the state's Unfair Trade Practices Act. In mid-February, the parties announced an agreement in which the insurers of the now-bankrupt Remington Firearms Company will pay plaintiffs $73 million. The families say more important than the money is what they learned through discovery about marketing practices of the industry, knowledge that gun violence prevention groups plan to use to pursue justice from other gun makers. They're also pushing for Congress to repeal PLACA. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Poe Murray, chair of the all-volunteer Newtown Action Alliance, established in the wake of the massacre. Here she talks about what was learned through the lawsuit and her group's work on the federal level to reduce gun violence. We're really thrilled that this lawsuit was settled um, you know, by the Remington's insurers because they uh, acknowledged the fact that there was some wrongdoing. Um, Remington um, has been um, egregious in marketing guns, uh, particularly weapons of war, to young people. Um, by suggesting that you won't have a man card, you know, unless you own uh, AR-15s. This sets a great precedent for other families who have been impacted by gun violence in this country. As you're aware, in 2005, the NRA and the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is headquartered three miles from the Sandy Hook Elementary School right in Newtown, uh, and the gun industry uh, made passing the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, also known as PLACA, their number one priority, and then they had President George Bush sign it into law. And since then, the gun industry has been mostly shielded from civil liabilities uh, for the use of you know, their dangerous weapons. So thankfully, um, there were some exceptions to the law 
And the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act um, allowed the Sandy Hook families to pursue this lawsuit. And um, we're hoping that other states will follow with having similar bills to allow uh, the families who have been impacted by gun violence to have their day in court to hold the gun industry accountable for the gun deaths and injuries in this country. So are you, since you do operate nationally, are you aware whether other states have similar laws that would enable families in other states to pursue the same uh, strategy? I'm not aware of any specific Unfair Trade Practices Act in each state, but recently uh, Attorney General Tish James from New York is supporting uh, some type of a bill in New York to allow uh, families to sue gun companies. Also, on February 18th, Governor Newsom from California announced that um, they are introducing a bill that is modeled around the anti-abortion law in Texas to allow um, anyone um, to sue the gun manufacturers. I mean, I know they went after Remington because they were the sellers of the specific gun that was used in the massacre at Sandy Hook. Are they just part of the you know gun manufacturing ecosystem where other companies are doing the same or was Remington worse? Just broadly, uh, the gun industry has been irresponsible. They make products that are not as safe as it could be. They're selling and marketing weapons of war to civilians, and they're blocking common sense efforts to keep illegal guns away from communities that are most impacted by gun violence. Recently, at the SHOT Show, uh, it is the gun industry uh, gun show in Las Vegas um, that is sponsored by the National Shooting Sports Foundation. There was a gun manufacturer from Illinois called We Tactical, We One Tactical. And this gun manufacturer is marketing uh, guns called JR-15s, which is modeled after AR-15s. And it's quite egregious. Um, some of the imagery includes skulls and bones and pacifiers, and the colors are for children. So essentially what they're doing is they're marketing weapons of war that are for small children, you know, the, the same age as the children who were killed in the Sandy Hook tragedy. Please tell me, those can't be real guns. They are real guns, and they're marketing it as AR-15, the make and feel just like your mom and dad's guns. But aren't there age limits? Yes, there are age limits for gun ownership and gun purchases, but parents can buy these guns for their children. So you, you said in the beginning that your organization focuses at the federal level in terms of legislation. And can you talk about what you've got going in you know, this congressional session? We're working on advancing H.R. 748 or S-190 in the Senate. It's called Ethan's Law. It's to require gun owners to lock up their guns when kids are around or somebody, someone who was prohibited from owning guns. Um, we have acquired 63 additional co-sponsors for the bill since the Oxford High School shooting, and we have 205 official co-sponsors, and we just need 12 more or 13 more co-sponsors, and we'll be able to pass this bill in the House of Representatives. But we have always believed a set of comprehensive measures are needed to end the gun violence crisis, including assault weapons ban, the universal background checks, and also um, funding community violence intervention programs. We are also working on urging the president to establish the Federal Office of Gun Violence Prevention 
and appoint a director who could spend 100% of his or her time on gun violence prevention. That was Poe Murray, chair of the Newtown Action Alliance. Learn more about the successful Connecticut lawsuit against Remington Arms Company and the campaign to reduce gun violence by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the past month, the so-called Freedom Convoy of truckers and their supporters engaged in militant protests over opposition to vaccine mandates that blocked vital U.S.-Canadian border supply routes and caused chaos in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. Anti-vaccine activists in France and New Zealand have organized similar movements, and there are reports that U.S. groups are now planning their own convoy. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the rarely used Emergencies Act on February 14th that allowed police intervention to free transportation routes, tow vehicles, and arrest nearly 200 protesters blocking Ottawa streets. Canadian police also arrested 11 people after discovering an arsenal of weapons among protesters at the U.S. border in Alberta. After convoy protesters displayed Confederate and Nazi flags, Exposing the extremist and white supremacist elements within the movement, polls found most Canadians supported the police action to prevent further disruption caused by the protesters. Your reporter spoke with David Hoffman, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Brunswick, who examines the involvement of extremists in the Freedom Convoy and significant support they've received from U.S. right-wing groups, conservative media, and Republican politicians. Uh, and it initially started off as, as an anti-mandate, anti-vax protest. But about two weeks ago, a small contingent of, of far-right protesters began to wave Nazi flags, uh, stand up in front of crowds and, and proudly say they were white supremacists and to, to cheering crowds and so on and so forth. And other far-right extremist propaganda and symbology found its way to the streets of Ottawa, which which shocked and uh, obviously upset many Canadians. And and since that point, it has largely uh, been one of the main focus points for the Canadian media and and uh, as well as scholars such as myself. Uh, since the far right in Canada, and when I say far right, I'm talking about the extreme of the extreme. They essentially have co-opted the movement and and taken away the narrative, the original narrative of anti-vax and anti-mandate, which was the core of that protest, and and have turned it to other far-right issues. Um, And uh, as time went on, the uh, moderates were, uh, the moderate voices were pushed aside, and the uh, protest was dwindled down to several hundred hundred individuals, which um, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and the federal government uh, enacted what's called the Emergencies Act, which is uh, legislation that allows the government to uh, take certain uh, exceptional action to dealing with the protest. And police forces have descended and arrested, uh, as you mentioned, around 200 individuals and have carted away uh, 70 or 80 trucks, I believe. Uh, that number may be wrong. Um, and it, it's, it seems, at least for the time being, that the uh, the protest is is quote unquote over. Professor Hoffman, 
Tell our listeners a bit about the actual and suspected U.S. support for this Freedom Convoy movement, including the media support from outlets like Fox News. As far as I've been reading, these groups online have collected, at this point, over $10 million in donations, a lot of, a lot of those dollars coming from uh, United States uh, uh, individuals and groups. Uh, last count that I heard, uh, although it, it, it's variable depending on on who's doing the counting, it was 18 million, uh, which is, uh, as you mentioned, a, a part of it. Not all of it, but a, a good chunk, definitely in, in the in the probably the seven to, to eight million dollar range, coming from the United States. Uh, it started with a um, give and go uh, and uh, and a number of other of these these kind of Kickstarter like support sites that essentially. Uh, the idea is that they were they were meant to fuel and buy supplies for the convoy, um, and uh, the Canadian government legislated, uh, or the Ontario government, which is is the province where Ottawa is located, the Superior Court uh, blocked the website's ability to to actually disperse the funds, um, and uh, essentially uh, mainly targeting foreign donations for the same reason that that. Anyone in, in any sovereign nation would be upset um, over foreign interference in, in civil or, or, or legislative or, in this case, public disturbances. This is obviously a cause for alarm for, for people who study this. It is uh, a way for the far right, not only in Canada, but elsewhere, to, to galvanize support public figures. I mean, I was even before the, you called for uh, this interview, I was reading about Candace Owens saying that, the, you know, she, she's obviously engaging in hyperbole, this, this far-right commentator uh, stating that, that the, the U.S. should invade Canada to or send troops to uh, support the truckers. And it, it's, all, it's all part of this larger, this financial support is all part of the, the larger narrative that, that not only the, the far-right in the U.S., wants to push, but the far right globally wants to push. It, it, what they see here is, is a movement that champions anti-federalist, anti-government rhetoric that they, they use to galvanize their support, which is why it's captured the, the minds, imaginations, and, and caused uh, uh, so many figures in, in North America, both in Canada and in the U.S., to dip into their wallets. This is a, a, a cause that, that resonates with the far right, and it, it's reflected in the amount of financial support that came or attempted to come from the United States. When when a, a far right group protests or defaces a monument, disrupts uh, civil society like this convoy did, it's important for uh, the community, the larger Canadian community, to make it very, very clear uh, through a nonviolent action that uh, this type of rhetoric, this type of ideology, and this type of disruption is not tolerated, nor should be tolerated. That was David Hoffman, Associate Professor of Sociology at Canada's University of New Brunswick. Find more analysis and commentary on Canada's Freedom Convoy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, KSER in Everett, Washington, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikita. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.